0: Luke chapter 13 here in the Scripture, and I'll read to you a passage that I read to you three weeks ago when I first began to preach on the subject of repentance. Today the subject is the Apostle Paul and the doctrine of repentance, the Apostle Paul and what he believed about repentance. Now in Luke 13 and 1, there were present at that season some that told Jesus of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that those Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, do you think they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? And he repeats himself, I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Thank you, and you may be seated. I spoke on this text three weeks ago today, and then I have continued speaking on the, in the area of repentance since. The background here is that Jesus refers to two current events that were happening in the city of Jerusalem at the time that he was addressing this subject. And one of them is that some Jews from Galilee had gone down to Jerusalem to the temple. They were offering their sacrifices there and apparently Pilate had word that these were part of a Rebel group, and so he sent soldiers in there. And that, those Roman soldiers didn't regard anything as being sacred; they were totally pagan. And so they killed these people, and their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. It would be like soldiers coming in here and shooting people while they were while they were worshiping God. And Jesus, and the people asked Jesus, "Do you think that?" those people that were killed, was that an act of God's judgment? Were those people worse sinners than the other people in the temple or in Jerusalem at that time? And Jesus said, absolutely not. Don't look at every current event as the judgment of God, is what He's saying. He is saying to them, but except you repent, as He addressed that audience, except you repent, You shall all likewise, just like these people have perished, so will you if you don't repent. And, of course, he was speaking of the judgment of God. And the second illustration there in verse number 4 is 18 people had been killed when a tower fell on them that they were constructing, I guess, somewhere uh, near the, the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And those 18 people died in what we would call an industrial accident. And again, the people said, well, were they, did, were they killed because they were being judged for their sin? And Jesus said, absolutely not. But except you repent, you will perish in like manner as those people did. So twice Jesus brings us to the absolute necessity of repentance. Now, I've spoken on it uh, these three Sundays Last week, I spoke on the idea of the unsaved Christian. Now, there's no such thing as an unsaved Christian. You understand that. But what I'm talking about is false professions of Christianity, false professors, which Jesus said there are many, many people on that road. And uh, in America today, my fear is that we have filled our churches with people who profess faith in Christ, but who have never genuinely been saved. And the missing ingredient for them is repentance. They have never repented of their sins. They have joined a church. They've gotten baptized. They're good people. I mean, morally speaking, they make a good neighbor to you, probably no different than a saved neighbor would make. But they really don't have a relationship with the Lord. They really don't walk with the Lord. They're not concerned about obedience to the Lord because they've never truly faced reality. They've never truly repented. And I'm so concerned about that because we're supposed to have, what now, 70, 80 million evangelical Christians in America, and yet America is falling apart like we can't believe. It's just incredible. I don't think that statistic... Of 70 to 80 million evangelical Christians and what is happening across America in our streets, in our legislative chambers, in our business community, and even in our churches. I don't think it could be happening if we had 70 or 80 million people who were truly committed to Jesus Christ. What we've got is 70 or 80 million church members who profess Christianity but who have never repented who missed step one before they went to step two and three in their life. The word repentance is a compound word. It comes from two Greek words. One is meta, which means after or afterward, and nous, which is mind. So you put the two together, afterward mind or after you change your mind. Repentance is very simply a change of mind. Please don't hear me wrongly. Every time you preach on repentance, I've learned there, there's somebody who questions their salvation. It's not my intention ever to preach doubt and cause anybody to, uh, to, to lose assurance of your salvation. Yet even this week, a report came back to me that a dear Christian in our church, unable to be here because of illness, but that they were questioning their salvation like this. Well, I don't know if I ever repented. And here's where people miss it. Repentance is not a separate experience apart from your salvation experience. It is the change of mind and heart that leads to salvation, to believing the gospel. In fact, I don't think you can believe in a saving way until first you have repented. In the Bible, repentance always comes first and then belief or faith in Christ follows that. I have defined repentance for you then as a change of mind. So it's not a separate experience you've had. If you go looking for that, it might cause you to doubt. Don't don't do that. Repentance, as you're going to see here in a few moments, is not a separate experience. Repentance is not regret that you, uh, uh, what, of what you did in the past. Repentance is, is not confessing every sin you ever made in order to uh, gain uh, uh, God's uh, forgiveness. I've talked to people and they, it's like they're carrying around this checklist. Oh my, I forgot to confess that one. Boy, if you're dependent on that, (laughs) you are in trouble. Because so much of our sins, we're not even aware of when they happen and what they are. They're a fleeting moment of thought or something, uh, an action that we did and have forgotten about. No, you don't need to go back and do some deep, deep inventory into the deep recesses of your soul. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He died, His blood is the remission for the sins of the whole world, we believe. And so today repentance then what is it it's a change of mind simply that a change of mind in three specific ways and i don't want you to ever forget this so i'm i know i'm repeating i don't apologize for it repetition is the best teacher isn't it repentance is a change of mind about your sin it it connotes a remorse for sin a sorrow a true sorrow for sin a realization that when I sin, I have offended Almighty God. It, it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks about it, what the preacher thinks, the church thinks. Sin is an offense against the Holy Creator God who made the universe. Sin is more than something you do or think. Sin has a power. As a pastor of this many decades now, boy, I can tell you, I have personally, individually observed sin is powerful. Sin gets hold of people's mind, and they don't think right. Sin gets hold of their emotions, and they respond wrongly because of sin. Sin takes control of of their will, And as people in addictions will tell you, they have no ability, no strength to overcome the pull, the power of sin in their life. Sin takes control of their bodies. And so people become addicted to alcohol, to drugs. Every cell in their body craves that forbidden thing. And it's the power of sin to bring them down. So sin, repentance, is a complete change of attitude and mind toward sin. It's a change of mind about myself. It means I quit striving to do anything to be saved. Did you hear me? If you're trying to do anything to be saved, to win God's approval and favor, you're frustrating the very grace of God, Paul said in the book of Galatians. Because God's grace is sufficient to save you without any effort on your part. By grace you are saved, not of works. Oh, I can't say it too much and too strongly. So repentance is a change of mind about sin, about myself, and thirdly, about Christ. I've found out that the greatest thing I can do to bring people to repentance is simply take them to the cross and they see the they see the Lord Jesus Christ shedding his blood god literally dying as a human being to pay for their sins the sacrificial lamb of god pouring out his life's blood for them and when people go there repentance repentance is 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 easy to come by, if you will. Now, in the New Testament, the most prominent person in your New Testament other than Jesus Christ is the Apostle Paul. You probably all would agree with me. He he became the most famous name in that era, recognized even by the government of Rome and the Caesars themselves. Paul started out as Saul, Saul of Tarsus, a Jew born in a pagan world, if you will. He, didn't, he was not born in Israel. Saul became, after his conversion, a missionary. He became a pastor. He became an evangelist. All great callings, but the greatest calling that Saul had in his life is that he was called upon by God to write about 40% of your New Testament. 13 of the books of the New Testament were written by this one man. Now, when I say that he was the author of 13 New Testament books, please understand, and I always stop and I have to do a little detour here, because so many people think, you know, the Bible's just written by a bunch of old men. No, the Bible was written with those old men committing those thoughts and words to the paper. But the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. Don't ever forget that. The primary author. And how that worked, we find out in 2 Peter chapter number 1, verse 20 and 21. Holy men of old spake or wrote as they were moved, borne along, controlled, pushed along in their endeavors by the Holy Ghost. Holy men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You see, when Paul was writing the words of those 13 books there, God's Holy Spirit came and took over in his mind and controlled the thinking process. And he then wrote with his hand what God put in his mind. And in fact, the Scriptures we believe are so infallibly perfect that there's not one single word that was added or one word that was deleted from the text, the original manuscript, as God directed Paul to write those 13 books. So when I say he was the author of 13 books, I'm not meaning that he wrote that on his own, out of his own experience, his own education, his own wisdom, though he was a brilliant intellectual. But I mean by that that God the Spirit came upon him and directed every single stroke of his pen. And he wrote those 13 letters to individuals, some of them like Philemon. He wrote some of them to churches like the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus and so on. And in those 13 letters that Paul gave us in the New Testament, the reason he's so important is he teaches us the gospel. He teaches us, pure doctrine. What is the truth of God himself? What are the truths that God conveyed to the apostle Paul that he put down on paper that you and I are to know? And not only did he give him the truth of God's Word, but he gave him instructions for us in our Christian life. So, Most of the preaching that we do in this age is from the New Testament. We preach more from the New Testament than the old, though they're equally inspired. Don't ever think that. But we preach from those because they instruct us in godly living. If you want to know how to live a Christian life, you read the epistles of the Apostle Paul. So here's this great man. And when I think about repentance I look at the life of the Apostle Paul because he epitomizes, he represents repentance better than any other single character that I know of in the Scripture. And I want you to open your Bible with me now. We're going to really, I'm going to read you more Scripture than I ever remember reading in one sermon before. And I hope you'll follow with me. If you're seated by somebody and they don't have a Bible, scoot over and share your Bible with them. And uh, I want you to note with me, number one, Saul's conversion that illustrates to us so well what this doctrine of repentance is. Now listen carefully to me and follow with me in your Bible. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul, that's what he was called before his conversion, was consenting unto the death of Stephen, the first martyr. At that time... There was a great persecution against the church at Jerusalem, and all the Christians, the members of the church, were scattered abroad except the apostles, it says here. And so Saul was consenting. He was a part of the conspiracy to murder, to kill poor Stephen, the first deacon martyr of the church here. In verse number 3, as for Saul... He made havoc of the whole church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. This man is so full of hatred towards God and Christ, toward the Christian faith. He goes door to door looking for Christians that he can put into the prison and persecute. And then if you'll go down to chapter 9, And a little more background on him here. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Now, just look at that. Here is a hate-filled man. He is breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem, and from him he obtains letters to Damascus, to the synagogues there, that if he could find any of this way, this way refers to the Christian faith. If he could find any Christians that believe this way, whether they were men or women, he could bring them bound back into Jerusalem. So he's on his way up to Syria, crossing the border into another country, attempting to persecute God's people here. And in chapter 3, or 9, and in verse 3, we read of his conversion. Now watch it closely. Verse 3, he's on the highway between Jerusalem and Damascus. That was a trade route. That was a main thoroughfare. There have been people on, like being on 95 today. Main thoroughfare between two major points. And in verse number 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly, there shined about him a light from heaven. And he fell. Fell to the earth under the power of what this whatever this was. He heard a voice then saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Uh, Side note, I want you to notice, when a Christian is persecuted, Christ is also persecuted. Christ so identifies with his people that if I am persecuted, The person persecuting me is persecuting Jesus as well. That's what it's teaching here. What's Saul's response as he lies down in the middle of the highway there? Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. That statement refers to the oxen or the ass that was being plowed in those days, and they would prick him with a goad to make him go, to to control the animal. And it's used in the Bible to refer to the pricks, the goads of the Holy Spirit in our own, in our consciences. It implies that Saul, in killing Stephen, and in being involved in the persecution of all these Christians, that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to him and pricking his conscience and preparing him even if as it were, for the gospel that's going to come to him. And so the light comes in verse 3, or in verse, yes, in verse 3. He falls down on the road. He hears a voice, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who is it, Lord? And in verse number 5, the Lord answers, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Now, I want you to notice repentance. It, the word repentance is not here but in verse 6, immediately he repents. He trembling and astonished, overwhelmed with surprise, trembling, his hands are shaking, his knees are weak. Lord, what will you have me to do? Now, just stop. Look up here a minute. You know what has happened here? A complete change of mind about his sin, himself, and about Jesus Christ. A few moments before he has been a hater of Christianity. He has been traveling up the road to get legal permission to persecute Christians in Damascus. And what happens? Suddenly, the light from heaven that blinds him, knocks him down on the road, a voice like thunder. And he is convinced, his mind is changed almost instantly. The Lord said to him, Arise and go on into the city. And it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men that journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but they didn't see anyone. And Saul rose up from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he couldn't see anyone. And they led him like a blind man by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he couldn't eat, he neither ate nor drank. And there he is residing in Damascus at the home of a man named Judas. And then the Lord comes and speaks in verse 10. He speaks to another man, Ananias. He said to him, Ananias, and Ananias said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said, I want you to get up and go to the straight street. And I want you to inquire in the house of a man named Judas for a This man called Saul, behold, he prayeth. He's changed. He's repented. And hath seen in a vision a man named, now he's telling Ananias that Paul has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him and praying for him. And so Ananias, in verse 13, answers, Lord, I've heard about this man. I've heard how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And in verse number 14, he is here with authority to bind all that call on the name of the Lord. And basically Ananias was saying, I'm afraid to go and even be around this man. He is such a a wicked figure. And in verse number 17, Ananias went his way. He entered into the house He put his hands on Paul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared to you in the way as you came, he has sent me, that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes scales, and he received his sight, and he did the first thing that every believer ought to do after they're saved. He was baptized. And so Paul now is baptized, and when he had received meat or food. He was strengthened. And Saul was certain days with the disciples, with the Christians. They're very people he had had his sights on to go and, and persecute. Now he's staying at Damascus with them. And look at verse 20. Straightway, immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he's the Son of God. Did Saul repent Oh, you can bet he did. And did he change his mind about his sin, about himself, and about the Savior? You can sure believe that he did. And now in verse 20, he's preaching the Christ he was persecuting in the synagogues a few days later that Jesus is the Son of God. And Paul, in verse 22, they're still calling him Saul. He increased the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews, proving that this is very, the very Christ, if you will. Go down to verse 26. And he leaves Damascus, and he goes to Jerusalem. And he tries to join the disciples or that, that are there, but everybody's afraid of him. You understand that. He killed the first deacon in their church. He has blood on his hands. And Barnabas took him in verse 27, introduced him to the people and said, no, he has really been saved. It would be like somebody who had such a background. They came here and got saved, and everybody would be afraid to have anything to do with them because they'd been so wicked. So Barnabas took over, and, uh, and he showed him kindness and introduced him around. Now, go with me down to verse 31, for the sake of time. Then the churches had rest throughout Judea and Galilee and were built up or edified and were walking in the fear of the Lord. In other words, when this man got saved, it affected all the churches because the persecution ceased, at least for a brief period of time. And so when I look at this story, I've read it to you. I've tried to call your attention to details because what I want you to see is this idea of repentance happens instantly. It's not a separate experience that people have. Paul didn't get down and confess for two days because he certainly had reason to. But in one instant, Christ touched his heart, brought him under conviction for his sin. He called upon the Lord and the Lord gloriously saved him. I preached on this about 10 years ago. Do you know what I call the message? The single greatest conversion in the history of Christianity. Because I think it probably was. It was certainly not a greater one. And it happened in a moment. He changed his mind. The man who had hated Jesus Christ and was persecuting all the churches now is preaching Christ in the synagogues and in the churches all over the place a change, a radical, a radical change of mind. That's repentance. Now, it doesn't stop there. Flip on down to chapter 17 with me. And it not only happened in his personal conversion, but in his ministry, he shows us the doctrine of repentance, if you will. We're in chapter 17. Between chapter 9 and chapter 17, we probably have a time lapse here of about uh, all 15 or 18 years. Most of his ministry now is behind him in chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Now we're at 17. And Paul is an older man, almost 20 years older. And uh, he is going back to Jerusalem. And so he boards a ship, or pardon me, he's, I'm ahead of myself. In chapter 17, he is in Athens, Greece. Athens, you understand, in those days was the center of intellectual life across the Roman Empire. It was the home of all the philosophers, the great intellectuals, secular men who had such philosophical training and so on. And there was a hill in the middle of Athens called Mars Hill. Mars Hill had on it, a big building at the top where a statue or an idol of all the gods was presented there in that building. And these philosophers would stand down there and argue about religion all day long, the various benefits of one religion versus another religion. And on this day, the apostle Paul goes there, and he stands in front of all those philosophers, and he begins to tell them about Jesus Christ. And he preaches to them the gospel which they've never heard before. And I don't have time to go into his message. But if you'll look down in verse number 30, here's his concluding point. Here's the close. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Underline that in your Bible. God commands all men. Is that everybody here? All men. Everywhere. Athens, Florence, Africa, China, Asia, Latin America. All men. Everywhere. Totally inclusive statement. He wants them to change their mind about their sins their self, and about their Savior. How did the people respond, these brilliant intellectuals? Verse number 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, that would be the gospel, some of them mocked. Do You know what? It doesn't matter where you preach or when you preach, you get three responses almost every time. Some people just sort of smirk and scorn and blow it off. I don't believe that stuff. You believe that old stuff? That Jesus Christ really was God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and somehow that, it, that can save people? So, do you believe that Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead? And today, boy, we've got our share of mockers and scorners, don't we? And then there's a second group here. Others said, We'll hear you again. Verse 32. In other words, I'm not ready to make a decision today. I'm going to think about this. I want to procrastinate a little while on this, but I'm not going to make a decision today. Don't try to pressure me into anything today. Third group is down in verse 34. And some believed. Some mocked. Some procrastinated and put it off. And some believed. And you have that basically in every. Uh, experience of preaching the gospel to the unsaved people today. Now, time goes by. Go on with me, if you will. Now, to chapter twenty, and Paul's heading back after all of his missionary journeys. His missionaries are so important that in the back of your Bible, there's a map that traces the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And the reason I say that is because you know, people today. Uh, they just kind of go through this, and it's, it's just kind of boring even to some people. It's just history. But this is the foundation being laid for the Christian faith across the ages. And Paul now has traveled worldwide, all over the Roman Empire and parts beyond. In fact, tradition says that Paul may have gone as far as England in his preaching and teaching, even in an ancient time. We come to chapter 26. Uh, part. 26. Pardon me, Chapter Twenty, and Paul is on a ship, and he's headed back to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has said, "Now, when you get there, you're going to be persecuted. They're going to they're going to oppose you, Paul." And so, in Chapter Number Twenty, he's on the ship going back, and uh, the ship stops to take on supplies at a place called Miletus. It's only about twenty miles from Ephesus, where Paul pastored for a number of years, and Paul sends word to the elders of the church there that he had planted. He said, come over to Miletus. I'm going to soon be there, and I I want to talk to you, and it'll be our farewell. I'll never see you again. God has revealed to me that I'm not going to live much longer. So they come to him, and we begin reading in chapter 20 and verse number 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And they came to him. And Paul then tells them about his ministry to them. And I don't have time to read all of that. But I do want you to notice what he says to them, beginning about verse number uh, 20 there. I kept back nothing that was profitable to you, but I have showed you when I was in Ephesus, I've taught you publicly I've gone from house to house with the Gospels, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He says it again. Underline that phrase. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And you notice the order. Always it's the change of mind first, and then it's faith. Faith can't come until the mind is changed. Repentance towards God, and then faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus preach when he first came? Repent and believe the gospel. And you see that pattern all the way through, and I don't want you to miss it. It's really important in your understanding of salvation with people repentance, the change of mind about sin, self, and Christ, and then faith comes, I can turn my attention to the cross and to the gospel, and the saving work of Christ occurs in my life. Now, he gets to Jerusalem finally, and in chapter number 23, Paul earnestly beholding the council said, men and brethren, I've lived in good conscience before you. And he speaks to the council there in Jerusalem, and it ends up in this big, almost like a brawl. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are at each other's throat. There's a big division there, and, and, and the, the, the authorities send in policemen or soldiers to rescue Paul. In verse number 10, there rose such a great dissension. The chief captain, fearing lest Paul would be pulled to pieces, and a mob commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force and bring him into the castle. The castle is where the governor lived. And so they take a journey down to Caesarea, 30, 40 miles away, and they put Paul in a castle where the governor is at that time. And Paul stays there. He stays there for the next two years, if you will. And in chapter 24, he has been incarcerated now for a long time, but go to chapter 24 and verse 24. The governor is a man named Felix, and he hears so much about Paul that finally, after this long period of time, he comes there with his wife named Drusilla. And he sent for Paul, and Paul, he heard Paul talk about the faith of Jesus Christ. So Paul preached. He he shared the gospel with the man. Now note carefully. He reasoned with Felix of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. Righteousness that God requires. Temperance. And judgment to come, he reminded him he would meet God. Here's what is interesting. Felix trembled. Wait a minute. The governor is trembling? Uh, it ought to be the preacher that's trembling. The prisoner ought to tremble in front of the governor, huh? Oh, not today. There's such power in this message that when this fellow Felix hears the message, he visibly Paul looks at him and his hands are shaking. He is so nervous. And he says, Paul, go away from me. When I have a more convenient season, I'll call on you. Man, I can believe what you're saying. But it's not convenient for me right now to become a Christian. It would be very politically inexpedient for me to get saved today. And so he sends Paul on his way, and Paul stays in jail. Look in verse 27, after two years, Felix is no longer the governor. He steps aside, and a new governor named Portia Festus comes, and he wants to show the Jews a pleasure, so he leaves Paul in jail. The enemies of Paul don't want him released, and so he does a little political favor for them and then if you will notice we come now to chapter number chapter 26 more time elapses and in chapter 26 in verse 16 something is happening here that i need to give you a little background on and in, in uh, chapter 26 this man felix the new governor is being visited by Herod, who is the king. And so these two big political bigwigs are here, and they want to see Paul, and they want to talk to him. So they come to visit him, and, uh, or Festus, rather. I said Felix didn't. And Paul witnesses to the two of them. Get down to verse 20, 28 of chapter 26. And Paul has shared the gospel with the king Agrippa, and he shared the gospel with Felix the gov- or with Festus the governor. And Paul sees that the king Agrippa is moved. Verse twenty seven. Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Do you believe the gospel? And in verse twenty eight, Agrippa said to Paul, "Almost, almost, you persuade me." To be a Christian, almost you persuade. Note the word persuade, persuade. When you persuade somebody, they change their mind, do they not? Persuasion means a change of mind, it means to repent. And this king that Paul has been witnessing to says, Paul, you almost persuade me to repent. You almost persuade me to change my mind. But he didn't. And through the years, you and I have sung a thousand times that old hymn, haven't we? Almost persuaded now to believe. Almost ready to change my mind, but not quite. And as far as we know, Agrippa perished in his sins. You see, until there's that change of mind, until there is that persuasion that my sin is what God says it is, that I am what he says I am, and that Christ is who he says he is. Until there's that persuasion, faith is impossible. Repentance shows me my need. It shows me my true position before God. And so last week when I preached the unsaved Christian, you see, that's my concern, is it's possible to believe the gospel intellectually. Yeah, I believe Christ died, was buried, and rose again, and still not be saved because there's no commitment to it. There's no persuasion that I really have this need and I'm going to perish unless I repent so I go to my doctor. It's time for my annual physical, and I go there, and the doctor checks me out. He says, Bill, I've got good news for you today. I can't find a single thing wrong with you, but I've got this prescription for this. I want you to take this medicine every day. Wait a minute, doc. If you can't find anything wrong with me, why am I taking this medicine? Well, I just, I I think it'd be good for you to take it. You'll feel better, it might help you a little, but just take the medicine. Doctor, there's nothing wrong with me. What do I want to take the medicine for? I hope you're making the connection. If people come to church, they never truly see themselves as God declares them to be. And yeah, I believe. I'll take the medicine. But it's superficial. It's taking the medicine, not swallowing it. It's saying, yeah, I believe the gospel, but no, I haven't changed my mind about my sin. I still enjoy that. And so they never come to real terms. They never close with Jesus Christ. And I've preached to you for three weeks because I don't want that to happen here. It's heavier preaching than you like to hear. If I preached like this for six months, some of you wouldn't come. But it's all right to get heavy and solemn every now and then when our souls are at stake, isn't it? And don't you see what's happening in Christianity and the country? Don't you see what's happening in the world around us today? How that our faith has taken a beating and that millions of people have just decided, I'm going to turn back. I'm not going to go to church. I I had a year That I didn't go to church and I kind of got used to it and I kind of like it. And if I want to go, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get on the internet. And I want you to think seriously about your life. Repentance is not a separate experience, it's not confessing every sin you ever committed before you got saved. It's just changing your mind. And you know what? It happens in an instant. Paul let down on his knees in the road, and he changed his mind about his whole life. A self-righteous man, a moral man, but he changed his mind about his position with Christ. And God saved him, became the greatest man in the history of Christianity. If you're here today and you're unsaved, it begins by saying, I turn." I turn from my sin, my self-effort, and I turn to Christ. And then you put your trust in Him. It's real simple then. You know, I look over the auditorium today. I don't see a lot of people that are unsaved people as far as I can determine. I look in that camera, though. I don't know how many people are watching on television, thousands of them, some of them in homes, some of them in their bed, some of them in a bar. I've had people write me and say, I watched you in a bar. They met on television. <laughs> I saw you in the bar. I've had people write me and tell me all kinds of, in the car driving down 95 now with a cell phone they watch. And We got people watching foreign countries even on the Internet. Whoever you are and wherever you are, all men everywhere need to repent. And repentance is changing your mind. It's not penance. It's not self-flagellation for your sins. It's saying, I've been wrong, and I'm going to turn to the cross and be right. And wherever you are today watching, in this building or out, Like our Lord said so long ago, except you repent, you will likewise perish. Oh, come to the Savior today. Come to the cross, my friend. And then most of us in this room are Christians. And here's the thing. Repentance is not just for the unsaved. In fact, the Bible deals with repentance for Christians more than it does for unsaved people, believe it or not. I've focused on the passages that deal with the lost. But each of us need to live a life of repentance, that every day we're pushing back against that tendency to think like the world, and our mind is in this constant state of, Lord, what do you want me to do, like Paul said here? And whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please, and bow your head as we close our service today.